Have you ever had something tragic happen in your life? And I'm talking about one of these things that changes everything. You know, this could be a, a death of a parent or child. This could be a life-altering illness. This could be abuse. This could be an unexpected loss of a job. Something that rattles you to your core. Right? These, these are extremely hard times to walk through, and it's so hard to do this alone, and that's why it's so beautiful when your community comes and rallies around you during your time of need. But sometimes, one of the most difficult things that happens in these times of need are the people who are trying to comfort you, right? Have you ever noticed that sometimes people really do freeze up and they say these stupidest things during the hardest moments in your life? Anybody ever experienced that, right? And church folk, we, we are the worst, like, we're the worst. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, but we have these little spiritual catchphrases that we're going to throw out there when we don't know what to say. Like, well, well God's got something better for you, or, or you should be thankful for what you have. Or one of the, the kickers is like, well, you just need to have more faith in the Lord. And, and, and these can deeply wound people who are already deeply wounded. Right? I mean, I have a 10-year-old who has spina bifida, and when Alethea was really young, I had this tension because church was, was like the most beautiful, safe place for us. And at the same time, it was the hardest place for us to be. Because, because we had community that would just rally and pray and lavish love on us. And then we had people who just said ridiculously not okay things. Right? I mean, you know, there are days where, where my wife and we would go home in tears because there are, there are well-intended but horribly delivered words of encouragement or prayers that we didn't ask for that started with things like, what's wrong with your daughter? I'll tell you what, man, people about made this pastor cuss in church. I'm like, I was so mad. I'm like, how dare you? I mean, so, you know, I, I've, been, I've experienced both, right? I've experienced wonderful counselors, and I've experienced some pretty terrible counselors as well. And I'm going to be honest, I'm not pointing fingers. There have been many a times where I need to repent for being the terrible comforter. In the uncomfortab uncomfortability of silence, I have just opened my mouth and said dumb things because I just didn't know what else to do. We're all guilty of this. We're all guilty of this. And, and I just want to even confess on the front end, man, this is not my sweet spot. This is not like, I'm not coming like, hey, man, if you want to learn how to do this, talk to Pastor Man. That's not the case. So I'm going to pray right now and ask Jesus that you are going to speak through these words. Empty me of me because Lord knows that I cannot speak to this with integrity. But Lord, your word speaks truth. And we didn't come here to hear from me. We came to hear from you. Just like in worship, we came to be with you. And so, Lord, speak through me for your name and your glory. Amen. You know, I went to seminary, and I went at the same time as my friend Katie. We were both going to Fuller Seminary, and she took this class called Grief, Death, and Dying. I was like, man, that's, that sounds exciting. Um, and I remember she, she went through this whole class, and I couldn't wait to get to the end because I was like, all right, Katie, what did you learn? Like, what, what, what did you learn? And she said, you know what, Matt? We had so many theological conversations, went through all these biblical examples. We had these deep-rooted conversations, and we just came to the conclusion, there's just really one thing you need when somebody's grieving. And I asked her, I'm like, well, what was it? And she told me what it was, and I said, girl, you paid $1,200 for that. <laughs> like, it was one of those things at the moment, I'm like, that does not seem like... Uh, like this, this massive world of wisdom. But man, over the years, I have reveled in the simplicity of what she said because I think so often we don't know how to handle or what to do in those situations when someone else is grieving. We just don't have a framework of, to know how to handle them. 
And, and this is what happens in the book of Job, right? So Job is this good guy. He's a straight shooter. He did everything right. You, you get in this first chapter, there's this interesting dialogue and banter between God and Satan. And uh, eventually, um, Satan and God chatted up, and God lets Satan do his thing with Job. And again, if you didn't hear last week's sermon and you want that broken down, and why God is not the bad guy in this situation, please go back and hear last week. I'm not gonna rehash that today, but at the end of this, Job functionally loses his children, his wealth, his livestock, everything. He's got boils all over his body. He was literally stripped of everything good around him. And throughout the story of Job, he encounters five different counselors, right? And this entirety of this book is the interaction between Job and these counselors, and then ultimately his interaction with God. And after hearing the first four counselors, his wife and his first three friends, Job and Job 16.2 said this, I've heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. <laughs> Tried to pick a really uplifting and exciting theme verse for us this morning, right? But if any of you have been in a hard trial, you know how radically important it is to have good comforters around you, how much that matters. It is a lifeline to your soul. And this morning, we're going to work through these counselors, these miserable counselors, get to the light of the end of this counseling tunnel, and hopefully learn how to move from being miserable counselors ourselves and comforters ourselves to those who are helpful. Because I want every microchurch in Greenhouse to be a place of healing and hope where there's a community of faith that is going to lift you up in a way that helps you walk through that in a godly and encouraging way. Now, let me take a, a really important, quick, just kind of two-minute diatribe here before we get any deeper into this passage, because I want to be clear. At Greenhouse, we have put the majority of our shepherding eggs in the microchurch basket. All right, if you've been through Activate, you've heard me say this, but look around. This is a big church. All right, can we just, can we just acknowledge that? I, I know it's kind of like one of the, like, it's a big church, and you can walk in on Sunday and get swallowed up by the sheer number of people in this room. And there's weeks and even months that could possibly go by where you don't have an authentic conversation or touch with anybody on Sunday. Because our Sunday gatherings are not set up to be our primary shepherding gatherings. If you attend Sundays and not a microchurch and you expect to be shepherded well here, you, you are just gonna be hurt and disappointed. We, we've set up our church as a both and model of church where we meet on Sundays in the macro church gathering, but then we also meet throughout the week in the micro church gathering. We feel like this is more biblical than just a Sunday gathering. And I can walk anybody through the ecclesial understanding of why we hold this view, but we believe that the full expression of church happens both on the Sunday gathering and also in the micro church. This is why we call it micro church. We believe that's a full expression of the church. So if you're just skimming in here on Sundays and you're not plugged in beyond that and you really don't want to be plugged in beyond that, well, the way things are set up here, you're not going to really experience biblical church as it's seen in the scriptures. So if you want church on Sunday and nothing more and you're just like, I'm not interested, I'm never gonna join a microchurch, then this really isn't the right church for you. But if you wanna be a part of a biblical church then your church experience at Greenhouse will be incomplete without the depth of community that can be found in a healthy microchurch where people know your name. They follow up with you. They know your hurts and your pains, your passions and desires. They can mourn with you. They can celebrate you in real time instead of coming to a person you might not really know in your time of need just because they have a pastor title in front of their name. Right? The functional frontline shepherds of our church are our microchurch leaders. So today's message is gonna be played out in and is for our microchurch communities within our larger community that will hopefully lead us to learn how to better wrap ourselves around people in need. 
Now here's the deal, if you're new or if you're just like, hey bro, I just got here, I don't even know what a microchurch is, you're welcome, I'm not trying to push you out or get you out of here, but I do just wanna be, it's, it's kind of one of the, clarity is kindness, and I just wanna be super clear with this. And even if you're watching online, we're trying to plant microchurches in your county, put in the chat the city and the county you're in and let us pray in a community where you are at right now. All right, let me get off my soapbox here. Breathe, everybody breathe. I'm gonna get back into the passage here. So back to Job. We've got five counselors in the book of Job. The main players or counselors in this book are Job's wife, his three friends, Eliphaz, Zophar, and Bildad, and then a fourth friend, Elihu. And we're gonna focus on these first four miserable comforters. And we're gonna break each of them down and see what they did right and see what they did wrong, right? And we're gonna clip along. We're covering about 35 chapters of Job today. So let's get going, right? Um, so let's start with Job's wife in Job 2, 9, and 10. His wife had a very short and powerful response to what he said and what he was experiencing. So it says, his wife said to him, are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, you're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not in trouble? And in all this, Job did not sin in what he said. So Job's wife is what we call a downer. Right? I mean, she, she represents a defeatism mentality. She literally says, just give up because your life is a hot mess and God is the problem. He was the one who abandoned you in your time of trouble. Now, now before we just go ahead and just instantly knock Job's wife, we've got to look at her perspective. It kind of makes sense from a humanistic point of view. She just lost all of her children too. She lost her house. She lost all of her livelihood as well. And so she's watching her husband suffer an excruciating pain. So if I'm trying to get into Job's wife's mindset, it's probably something like if living faithfully before the Lord means being treated like this, she reasoned, it's probably just better to die. Now, the key point is that Job's wife is working through the premise that God is the one who is responsible for both the good and evil things that are happening, which just isn't true. Again, see last week's sermon to unpack that. But we're often tempted to do what she did, which is view bad happenings as God's cruelty or his punishment upon our lives. But in Job's case, suffering was not the result of God's judgment or cruelty at all. In fact, Job was later best blessed with twice as much as he had before this whole thing happened. But when we live with a defeated mentality like Job's wife, we will always be defeated. Right, anybody in the room have children under about 10 years old? Any, any parents? Okay, a few of us here. So you'll, you'll appreciate this. Do you, have you had those moments with your kids where you're like, hey, honey, can you go, go, go get that jar? And they just like, they don't even look over. They're like, I can't do it, dad. It's too tall. I can't reach it. And I'm like, maybe it's this tall. You can reach, right? Or it's like, hey, can you go get your water bottle? And they look at you like you're a crazy person. They're like, I don't know where it is. What do you want me to do? I'm like, I want you to turn your head six inches and see it five feet from you and pick it up and bring it to the table. Maybe I'm just having some therapy right now, but thank you for, for being with me here. Uh, you know, it's, it's just one of those things that like, it's, it's, it's funny because sometimes I'm like, baby, you can do it. But, but, but when we believe we can't, we won't. And if we've convinced ourselves that God is against you, then in your mind, even though it's not true, he's always going to be against you no matter how many blessings or times he provides for you. If this is where you're at, then you need to listen to the words of the prophet, Rick Astley. I know that Jesus is never gonna give you up. He's never gonna let you down. He's never gonna run around to search, never gonna tell a lie or hurt you. That's not who he is. <laughs> Thank you all the 40 plus in here. Um, <laughs> And this is the difference between Job's mentality and his wife's mentality. See, Job knew his God. 
He was intimately acquainted with Yahweh and his character. And it's in times like this where good theology matters because a theologically sound understanding of who God is is paramount to understanding what he allows. I'm gonna say that again. A good theological understanding of who God is is paramount to knowing and understanding what he allows. Because so often we're trying to understand God's actions before tackling the relational work of understanding who he is and his character. So if you have no relational understanding of Jesus and you don't know the character of God, then by default you cannot understand who he actually is and understand why things are happening the way they do. See, because there's a large majority of churchgoers who don't actually know God because they're biblically illiterate. Studies have been done. This is a fact. This is not, me just, not, just, this is not just me being a punk, right? Pe- people have not read the Bible, and so they don't know the God they're in. Just because you go to church doesn't mean that you know God or his nature or his character. To know God, you have to do the personal work of digging into the scriptures and finding out who he really is, not trying to piecemeal the Godhead together from sermons you hear on a Sunday. Because if that's what you do, then that God will let you down. That God will try to spite you. And that God is not going to make sense because that's, a God, that's the God that you're serving and it's not the God of the Bible. That's the God you made up in your head because you lack the biblical knowledge of understanding who God actually is. And this is where scripture matters. And this is where Job and his wife were on totally separate pages and had totally different reactions because scripture paints the picture of who God really is. So let me share a few verses that my family and I have memorized. We've been through some tough times, but we know the God of the Bible and that has helped us get through. Deuteronomy 31.8, the Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Psalm 119.114 says, you are my hiding place in my shield. I hope in what? Your word. Proverbs 18.10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous can run to him and be safe. Isaiah 40, 29, he gives strength to the weary. He increases the power of the weak. Psalm 3, 3, you, O Lord, are a shield around me. You're the glory and the lifter of my head. Psalm 27, 1, the Lord is the light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Psalm 62, 6 says, he alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. Isaiah 41.10, this is the first verse my daughter memorized. It was, so do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Listen, folks, we could go on and on, but this is the God that we serve. And this is how God, the God of the Bible, interacts with us in our times of need. He's not just your angry dad that you've projected into the sky. Don't project your understanding of who God is on him. Read the word and let that project the nature and character of God in your mind and in your spirit. You need to know the character of God that is found in the word. And when we stand on his word and his promises, when we have memorized them and hidden them in our heart, when circumstances come to shake you, you will be unshakable when we fortify our mind. When trials come to tear you down, the word of God will lift you up if we know our God. When we feel like the world is crumbling around you, you can stand on the solid rock and watch everything else crumble and know that you are immovable. But if you're simply standing on the whispers 
of a God that you heard from someone else, you will be overwhelmed like Job's wife and feel defeated because you don't really know who Jesus is and therefore cannot really know his nature or his character or how he's going to respond to things. Friends, there's so much latent power in the word of God if we just took the time to really fortify our mind with the realities of who he is and what he's done and that thereby showing who we are and what we're supposed to do. You know, when I was in college, Clayton King, he's an evangelist. Uh, a lot of people know him. He's come and spoken here once or twice. Um, he came to this campus group I was a part of. He was giving a sermon on the importance of the word of God. And I remember at one point, he had everyone stand up in the room. There's about 500 college students in the room. He said, all right, if you can recite five scriptures to me right now, stay standing. Half the room sat down. He went up to 10 scriptures. More people sat down. 15 scriptures. More people sat down. He got to 20 scriptures. There was one guy standing out of 500. And Clayton said something to the effect of, y'all are 18 to 22 years old. If the word of God is as important as you say it is to you, then why is it that only one of you has memorized the equivalent of one verse for every year that you have been alive? He said, you've memorized songs, you've memorized jokes, so then why is it that the one that we put our eternal trust in, you don't even know what he says? And I'll be honest, I was one of those kids that sat down at five. But that marked my soul, man. I was like, okay, Lord, I need to know who you are, and if that's how I do it, then that's what I'm gonna do. And that was one of the best decisions I've ever made in my Christian walk because when we memorize scripture and we hide the word in our heart, the realities, the character, the nature of God and his kingdom saturate our soul in the deepest way possible, and these need to be lodged deep inside of you. So when external hardships press in from every side, you can stand firm on the understanding of the reality of who God is because it's so real to you that you cannot be shaken by outside circumstances. And this was the case. Job had his issues. I'm not saying he's squeaky clean here, but Job knew his God. His wife did not. But it was only through the suffering that this truth was laid bare and then sprang forth. Sometimes suffering is the catalyst of true belief because it's exposed, because it's easy to follow Jesus when everything's going good. But a theologically sound understanding of who God is is paramount to understanding what he allows. So that's Job's wife's little discourse there. So after Job's wife drops this kind of like, you know, Debbie Downer verse on him, the story goes on to tell us in Job 2, 11 through 13, when it says this, it says, when Job's three friends, Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Naamathite, uh, had heard all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together in agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. And they began to weep out loud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. And they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights, and no one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. Now, if the book of Job ended here, this would be a very different story because there are three things here that his friends did that were amazing and right. Okay, the first thing he did was in verse 11. It says they came to him. They met Job where he was at. They didn't have any expectations of him initially. They simply came to be with him. All right, verse 12, the second thing, they began to weep out loud. They tore their clothes, sprinkled dust on their heads. This was sign of, signs of deep grief and mourning in this culture, right? So they, they mourned with him. And in verse 13, the third thing says, they sat on the ground for seven days, seven nights. No one said a word. They just spent time being with him. And this is a powerful combination 
and really embodies not what a terrible comforter does, but what a great comforter does. You know, I experienced this when 11 years ago, again, we found out that Allie was going to be born with spina bifida. My wife and I are just so broken. We just didn't know what was happening. We didn't know what to expect. We just had this 20-week ultrasound. We just found out we were having a little girl. We were so excited. We're calling our parents and, and, and just celebrating with our friends. And so we're doing this. And, and then the doctor comes back out and says, hey, we, we need to talk to you again. And they share with us that our, our daughter's going to have some major, major medical issues. As we came out of that, we were just so distraught. I called Sally Martin, who was the operations director here at Greenhouse 11 years ago, and I was like, hey, Sally, I can't, I'm, I'm, I'm not coming in for the rest of the day. I'm, I'm done. This was about noontime. She was like, no, I, I need you to come in. I said, no, I don't think you understand. I, I'm, not, I'm not coming. I'm not coming. And she said, no, I, just come with Tracy for about 15 minutes. Just give me 15 minutes. She's a doctor, so I was like, maybe she's got some things to say. So it's like, okay, fine, we'll go. And I'll never forget the moment that we were at our old campus, Tracy and I walked into the, uh, the old sanctuary and the entire staff was there and, and I just remember one specific moment. It just marked my soul, man. I remember Tim Welch, our facilities director, was just standing there and he, his eyes were moist already and he just saw me and he just kind of came up to me and he just, just gave me the biggest hug that he could. He just wept. And that released me to just feel like I could just weep and, and he just held me and in the manliest way possible, he held me and, and just, just gave me like a, a shoulder to cry on. And I just sat there for, I can't even tell you how long. I don't even remember. But it was one of the most impactful things outside of God and Tracy, my wife, that anyone's ever done for me in my family's journey with this. I was so grateful for Tim that day because friends, hugs, tears, and silence say way more than words ever will. And you can mess up words, and honestly, you most likely will. But you can't really go wrong with presence, proximity, and mourning with those who mourn. And initially, Job's friends, they did just that, right? And if, and if they would have just stopped there, this book would have been very different. But like most of us, they can't help but open their mouths and say something stupid, especially us, because we're in a culture right now where we don't know what to do with silence. We think quiet voids mean something bad's about to happen and that if there's silence that, that something should be said or we're not smart enough to drop the words of wisdom that we should know right there so, so we just blurt out whatever comes to our mind and these are markers of a terrible comforter. And this approach is absolutely wrong. You look in chapter three, Job unleashes his pain, raw, unfiltered hurt. And instead of letting Job just release that anguish and being with him in that process, his friends just open their mouth in response. And Job's friends said some pretty stupid stuff that was not in line with scriptural truth. They said some good stuff as well, honestly. But Job's wife and his three friends were predominantly a cacophony of the world's wisdom when it comes to suffering. And that's mostly based in karmic thinking that, oh man, if you did that, you probably deserved it somehow. Right, we want, that's the thing, we want justice for all wrongdoing as long as it's not the wrongdoing we did because then we're like, well, Lord, give me a pass. You know my heart, right? Is this not true, <laughs> right? When it's a faceless organization or it's a church or it's a criminal or it's systems that we can remove ourselves from, we want justice to the full extent and we want to jump to all kinds of conclusions because of that. And this is kind of what these three friends functionally do with Job. They think, oh, if bad things are happening, ultimately it must be Job's fault. There must be something that he did that justice now needs to be served. 
Now we're going to cover a lot of ground right here. We're going to go through the three friends. They each give three, two to three discourses over the book of Job. So what I'm going to do is put up a Cliff Notes version of each of the three friends and what they said and in the order that they do so. This is kind of like thesis statements of the friends. So we're going to start with Eliphaz. In Job 4 or 5, he's the first one to talk. He basically says, if you're not prospering, you probably did something wrong. But also, if, just know that God disciplines those he loves. It's a sign of God's care for us. God wounds only to bind up and happiness will ultimately be your lot. Second discourse, Eliphaz says, if you fear God, you're not going to suffer. Sinful people are doomed to destruction. Job 22, he says, God would only allow evil to happen to someone who's done something very bad. So you can kind of see Job open, Eliphaz opens his mouth. He's actually the most tactful and theologically sound of the three, uh, of the three friends. But here's the kicker, and here's the kicker, not everything he said was bad, right? Mike said this last week that a lot of his friends are actually quoted in the New Testament, but here's the kicker. When someone is suffering, the right word of wisdom at the wrong time is the wrong thing. The right word of wisdom at the wrong time is still the wrong thing. Or have you ever been barraged with scriptures when someone's trying to get you theologically grounded after a tragedy? When you're still in phase one of not trying to lose your cookies and like snot all over your furniture, right? The ugly cry that you just can't stop, right? What they're saying could be theologically accurate and correct, but it's not what's needed in the moment, right? We just need to be with people when they're suffering, suffering. be with them, not preach to them. I know that makes some, makes some of us in church uncomfortable because like, well, but, but Matt, the word of God's living and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates soul and spirit. It never returns void. I get all that and I agree with that. But let me give you an anecdotal example. Let's say you're struggling with sleep and we're praying and, and you finally start to like nod off and you're starting to sleep for the first time in a long time and I speak loudly in your ear. Psalm 4.8 says, in peace I will lie down and sleep for you, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Believe it, <laughs> right? Right verse, very true, stating scripture, wrong time. It's the wrong time, right? And if you watch Eliphaz's progression, you can see the frustration as he continues to banter with Job. Job 4 through 5, Eliphaz is relatively nice, but he gets more frustrated and sharp as he progresses because Job didn't line up to his nicely theologically packaged statements. And I wonder sometimes how much of this is Eliphaz's heart for Job or Eliphaz's heart to be right and heard. Eliphaz, this isn't about you, brother. This isn't about you. Next up, we have Bildad. Still don't know why that name's not more popular. All right, so Job, Job 8, 4 through 7. I'm just going to read. This is kind of the, the thesis, thesis straight from the Bible. It says, when he said, when your children sin against God, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. But if you seek God earnestly and plead with the Almighty, if you're pure and upright, even now he will rouse himself on your behalf and restore you to your prosperous state. Your beginnings will seem humble. So prosperous will you be. Translation, kind of ambiguous. He's kind of like, it might be your fault, it might not. But your children got what they deserved. It's pretty rough. Job 18, his second discourse. Basically, he says, God punished the wicked. You did something wrong, bro. Job 25, he says, a person cannot be right before God. So Bildad gets more confrontational with Job's same line of thought as Eliphaz, granted with some ambiguity. He's saying that you probably did something wrong and these are your consequences. So if Eliphaz is diplomatic, if, if Bildad is somewhat ambiguous, Zophar is just downright cruel, man. He's just a punk. Job 11, he basically said, you did something wrong and you deserve worse than you received. And Job 20 said, man, the one who commits sin will suffer for it. Read between the lines, Job. All right, so, so here's the deal. I think we can all agree his friends kind of blew it here, right? They started good in Job 2, 11 through 13, but then they blew it. 
And here's the deal. There's a time to talk and there's a time to process, but we rush into that so quickly that long-suffering doesn't have a chance to manifest. If we're honest with ourselves, we want short-suffering and we want people to get over it so they'll stop inconveniencing our lives. Nobody's ever gonna say that, but that's how our actions play out a lot of times. Right? Have you ever told someone or have you ever been told, just get over it? Or it's been a year, come on, man, tighten up, right? But long-suffering is one of those 1 Corinthians 13 explanations of love. Some translations merely say patient, but long-suffering is what makes a comforter special and effective. Long-suffering comes from this Greek word, makrothumia, which means long-tempered or patient. It gives this kind of like word picture of long-wicked instead of short-fused. The problem is most people think of long-suffering as somebody who's weak or meek or they just take it for the greater good, but someone with macrothumia, man, they have a stronger-than-usual character that is bold in resisting rash reactions. So I'm not just talking about retaliation. I'm also talking about somebody who can sit and endure and will not react or blurt out when someone else is suffering. So with this in mind, I want to read you a modern-day parable of the story of Job, even though I'm sure the author didn't mean it that way. But I'm going to ask you to have faith like a child when you listen to it. I'm going to read it the way I would my kids. So you're going to get some voices and all kinds of good stuff. We're going to read The Rabbit Listened by Corey Dorfield. One day, Taylor decided to build something, something new, something special, something amazing. Taylor was so proud. But then, out of nowhere, things came crashing down. The chicken was the first to notice. Look, look, what a shame. I'm sorry, sorry, sorry this happened. Let's talk about it, talk about it, talk about it. Look, look. But Taylor didn't feel like talking, so the chicken left. Next came the bear. Oh, how horrible. I bet you feel so angry. Let's shout about it. Oh. Taylor didn't feel like shouting, so the bear left. The elephant knew just what to do. Trump, no, I can fix this. We just need to remember exactly the way things were. But Taylor didn't feel like remembering. So the elephant just left. One by one they came. The hyena, <laughs> let's laugh about it. The ostrich, Let's hide and pretend nothing happened. The kangaroo, tisk tisk, what a mess, let's throw it all away. And the snake, shh, let's go do- knock down someone else's. But Taylor didn't feel like doing anything with anybody. So eventually, they all just left until Taylor was alone. In the quiet, Taylor didn't even notice the rabbit, but it moved closer and closer, until Taylor could feel its warm body. Together they sat in silence, until Taylor said, please stay with me. The rabbit listened. The rabbit listened as Taylor talked. The rabbit listened as Taylor shouted. The rabbit listened as Taylor remembered and laughed. The rabbit listened to Taylor's plans to hide to throw everything away, to ruin it for something, someone else. Through it all, the rabbit never left. And when the time was right, the rabbit listened 
to Taylor's plan to build again. I can't wait, Taylor said. It's going to be amazing. The end. <laughs> so here in this sermon, we read that book. It's like, so what, so what do you want me to do with this, Matt? How, how do I be a good comforter? comforter? How, how long can I listen before I can speak to this person? Honestly, there's no formula. The right answer is as long as they need. You just need to be with them. And this is the key text in the book here. When Taylor, after a long time of just being there, the rabbit's there, Taylor initiated the conversation and invited the rabbit in by saying, please stay with me. Notice how Taylor went through all the things the animals suggested. He just needed to do it on his time. So to avoid being terrible comforters, we need to maintain our posture of long suffering until the person who is suffering dictates when they're ready to start talking and processing instead of you trying to dictate that timing for them. See, we need to be more reflectively emotional and journey with the suffering person, allowing them to navigate through the process of grief and not trying to micromanage it or do it our way. And here's the deal. When God is a part of this grief journey and friends come alongside the person that's suffering with long-suffering, then healing can begin. You know, I asked a few counselors how they interpreted Job And I want to quote one of them. She said, Job's friends could not sit long-term with pain. They had to judge that pain as a measure of God's faithfulness. They could not sit in the tension between having pain and suffering and God being present and not judging Job for something. What good comforters do is they are able to sit in the long-suffering without the need to judge why there's pain. We have to sit with pain and sit with joy. We need to be friends who are able to see God co-creating a narrative from someone's longing and desire through their pain and suffering. But when when we as comforters are unable to feel like we're managing the pain and we default think in dualistic terms of this happened, so this must be the reason, that's when we blow it with people. See, God is a God of mystery. And most of us just can't live with that. We live in a post-enlightenment binary culture where critical thinking and mystery have been outsourced by and abandoned for easy answers and surface level reasoning. There's very little wonder and mystery left in this world because we're so arrogant that we think that we can figure out everything by ourselves. And sometimes we're just not gonna figure it out. And we've gotta be okay with that. Again, if we know who God is, we know the promises, we know his character, we can rest in the fact that he does, even when we don't. But there is mystery in suffering. I can't dictate your experience. I can tell you mine, though. That the times that I was absolutely most grieved in my soul, when the pain of my circumstances literally just drove me to my knees every single day, It was wild because in those circumstances was when I experienced God more powerfully and intimately than any other time in my life, more than any mountaintop experience, more than any ministry experience, more than anything else. And this is just who our God is. He strengthens, he is strengthened and bolstered in our weakness. God can use suffering as a part of his divine plan to strengthen the believer's life and change the lives of others for his glory if we allow it to take place. Now, does that mean that God is the author of that pain? Absolutely not. But does it mean that he can meet us in that pain? That he can minister to us in that pain? That he can be with us 
and dwell with us in that pain? Yeah, scripture absolutely says yes. You know, I told you about my friend Katie and the grief, death, and dying class that she took. And I asked her what she learned. She said, out of all of our deep theological and hermeneutical studies, we learned that the one thing you need to do is just be with the person that's suffering. Just be a quiet presence. Don't preach, don't fix, just be. So I want you guys to throw that slide up there for me, please, which is gonna show you again those three things that Job's friends did in Job 2, 11 through 13. Because this is what a good comforter looks like. Good comforters meet people where they're at. Good comforters mourn with those who mourn. Good comforters spend time with those just being without preaching, without fixing, without trying to hurry the process along. This is kind of our application for the, for the, for the day, church. Uh, we, we need to be good comforters who are willing to sit in long suffering with those around us. We hate it because it's inconvenient for us, but we love it when we're the one who needs it. So let's be the church. I mean, just imagine, what, imagine if the church was the place for long suffering. Imagine if outside of these walls, everyone just knew, man, if you are hurting, you just need to go to a church and they will embrace you, and they will take you in, and they will fiercely love you and walk you through it. Imagine how different the vision of the church would be. I hate that we're known for what we're against and not what we're for. And this is tough. You know, because we all, and here's the deal, like, we all have this longing in our heart to take away the pain and the hurt from the people that we love. Especially, any parents, like, you know that this is true. You would do absolutely anything to take away the hurt or the pain that your child experiences. Even if you're not a parent, we all have this spark inside of us that we want to take away the pain from the people that we love, to substitute our place in the place of the ones that we love. And there's a reason for that, because there's a parental bond to sacrificially love our children, especially in mothers that are so deep, and it's just a deep biological and spiritual drive. We would do anything for our children. In an instant, if we could take it away, we would. But this is not just biological preservation. This is because we're made in the image of God. We as humans, we can't assuage suffering, right? We can't take the place of our children as much as we want to, but the reason that desire's in us is because that's exactly what God did for his children, for us, through his son, Jesus, and that desire is imprinted in our spiritual DNA. But the reality is Jesus is the only one in this cosmos that can substitute himself and take the place and the weight of your sin, your hurt, your pain, and in the place of that, give you freedom, wholeness, salvation, and healing. He is the suffering servant, the one who bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you are healed, right? He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was laid upon him so that ultimately he could substitute that and say, listen, I know that you're not going to live up to the standard of perfection. The Bible says in James 2.10 uh, that if anyone is guilty of breaking even one measure of the law, he's guilty of breaking all of it. So even, this is it, we judge ourselves by one another. I'm like, well, at least I'm not like this guy. Well, at least I'm better than her. Well, at least I didn't do that. But God says, listen, if you did one single thing wrong, you don't make it. You don't make it. 
But there is one person that we can put our trust in and freedom and healing and wholeness and shalom and all these things it's found in the name of and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and he is quietly and powerfully waiting for you to respond this morning he's the rabbit he slowly nuzzled up he's waiting for your response right first Peter says cast all your cares on him because he cares for you He is the beautiful and wonderful and perfect comforter. The spirit of God is ready and waiting and willing to give you the peace that you're looking for. He will meet with you and be with you. He will mourn with you and he will not ever leave you. And he might do this supernaturally. He might do this to the people in in this room where you feel his presence and that comfort, but you've got to let him in. 